you're listening to the Down East Mike Podcast, the quirky little podcast from Maine. And now, your host, Down East Mike. Dee 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 dee. Good morning, everybody. This is Down East Mike of the world famous Down East Mike Podcast, episode number 107, news and commentary for Friday, November 3rd, 2023. Our motto here is some of this is whimsy, some of it's true, and the interpretation of it all is entirely up to you. So as we said, this is Friday already, November 3rd. We are moving into winter here in down east Maine. The squirrels are gathering their nuts, and the nuts are gathering squirrels. That's the way it goes. They're already out getting pine tips to make uh, wreaths with. That big wreath across America Caravan be heading south soon. All that stuff's going to be going on. Time for the fishermen to put their gear away and go south for the winter and hang out in Florida. We should mention that the Down East Mike podcast contains no mean words, just wholesome goodness from Down East. I think my voice cracked a little bit there. But this is why we do this piece. It's for the warm-up. Wholesome goodness from Down East Maine a historical, literary, auditory candy store. And we also ask if you heard the bells in the door when you came in. You can almost smell the dust in the air and see the old antiques over in the corner, the picture frames, the old mirrors, the stuffed animals, all that stuff for sale that nobody ever wanted to buy. Sort of like the Island of Misfit podcast. In today's episode, we have... And you'll think these are from today, right? In today's episode, we have Trudeau says he won't quit. That's from this day in 1972. The Russians are heading towards Kisan this day in 1972. History repeating itself. We have a bad ad roundup from 1972. A diary from 1800. The mammal of the moment and much more. We always say much more so that it will keep you around and and you'll think there actually is much more and there probably isn't. We don't have any birthdays of the day, but we do have a word of the day that we thought was fitting for the times we're in here in Maine. Resilience. And resilience is a noun. Uh, the capability of a strained body to recover its size and shape after deformation caused especially by compressive stress, or is also the ability to recover from or adjust easily to misfortune or change. Resilience, R-E-S-I-L-I-E-N-C-E. Resilience in physics is the ability of an elastic material such as rubber or animal tissue to absorb energy such as from a blow and release that energy as it springs back to its original shape. The recovery that occurs in this phenomenon can be reviewed as analogous to a person's ability to bounce back after a jarring setback. From the present participle of the Latin verb resolere, meaning to jump back or to recoil. In the base of Resolir is salir, which is a verb meaning to leap. 
that also pops up in the etymologies of such sprightly words as Sally and Somersault. Can you look at the words Somersault and Sally without picturing somebody somersaulting down a hill? I think of that cheese roll chase they have. Where is that? Where they chase the rolls of cheese down the hill. Uh, how about uh, we'll do a quote with the word resilience in it. It is really wonderful how much resilience there is in human nature. Let any obstructing cause, no matter what, be removed in any way, even by death, and we fly back to first principles of hope and enjoyment. Now, where do you think that quote using the word resilience came from? It's not from something that you'd think. That's Bram Stoker in Dracula, 1897. So even Dracula was resilient. Uh, illness of the instant, you know, we could come up with one, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass on that. We're going to skip right to the headline from this day in, in uh, 1972, where Trudeau, it was Pierre Elliott Trudeau, but the same, same scenario, and he was in Ottawa saying... He won't quit despite the tight vote in Canada's general election and the leader of the New Democratic Party pledged the support Trudeau needs for a majority in the House of Commons. It seems like I was living in Canada at the time when all this was going on. Maybe I wasn't. Maybe it was a dream. But they had that Canadian version of everything, like uh, the Canadian version of Newsweek and the Canadian version of Time magazine. It just seemed a little bit off. I think they had like a maple leaf symbol in the upper right hand corner so you knew you were getting your news from a bona fide Canadian source. How about let's just swing over and look at a yeah swing. Let's look at a, a bad ad, some bad ads from 1972. This is this is something. It's a oh she's quite attractive young lady. She's standing there next to a snowmobile that is perched up on its, it's still in vertical. It's it's right up in the end. This lady standing here, she's got her hand on the snowmobile, and the title of the ad is Swinger, the all new fun mobile engineered for quality, dependability, and sports car handling. Winters of fun for everyone with the Swinger, the all-new snowmobile that is built the right size for the whole family. The sporty Swinger has better flotation. It's light. It's compact. It stays on top of the snow. And then they say, don't let the size of the Swinger fool you. It's definitely not a toy. If it's your first snowmobile or if you are a family who wants more than one machine, get two Swingers. Don't buy any snowmobile till you've seen Swinger at Neil's Snowmobile Shop. And that was on on the hill in New Auburn. I don't recall Swinger being around much beyond that point. We had some other bad ads here. There was some of the stuff that was going on in Europe. They had a Hunter's Special. That was a pickup camper and equipment ready to go. Perfect for the ardent hunter. I don't know if we have any ardent hunters anymore. Is anybody ardent about anything? And this was 1972, but it was a 67 Chevy. Top condition, 11-foot camper, best offer, telephone, 353. This was when you had to pay by the word for your ad space, so they abbreviated everything. A 50-pound bag of sunflower seeds. 
And that was at Stevens Feed Shop in Savatis, Maine. Uh, Norm's sewing machine had sales $3 on home service on a, on a sewing machine to come to your house and fix your sewing machine. Here's one linoleum and carpet center in Lewiston. I'll floor you, Shannon Han and Son. That was a good ad. Uh, Mail Hots TV. Nobody fixes TVs anymore. They check them out and buy new. Carhartt Brown Duck Steel Workers. Overalls, dungarees, jackets, and hoods at Louis in Lewiston. And they were open Monday and Friday nights until 9. But they were selling Carhartt then. So that's been around for a while. It's been good quality work clothes. They wanted girls for general office work, one full-time, and one to work during school season, bilingual, preferred. This was in Lewiston, so they're probably looking for French-speaking. Of course, today you wouldn't run an ad saying you wanted girls for your office. It would definitely get you in the news right away. Uh, Robert Spencer was a realtor in the area in Auburn, and he said, we have a buyer for a small tavern in the Lewiston, Auburn area, something that's large enough for a band and is priced under uh, price moderately. If you have something like this you're selling, please give us a call. Probably the band wanted to buy a place to play. They were probably like that Frank Norwood so bad. It's like, oh, better buy our own venue. That's probably next. Uh, fall cleanup at the Edward Little Key Club for work done, call these numbers. So I don't know if they went out to do it. The ground uh, at Poria's in Lewiston was it. They had ground pork, lean fresh for 69 cents. Beef liver for 59 cents. Who didn't want to have liver and onions for dinner? They had daisy ham, boiled ham. They had a one-pound NBC premium saltine for 45 cents. And it's interesting, this is 1972, but they have kind of like the British symbol for cents at the time. Well, some of our bad ad rounds up. Uh, also, in this day in 19. 43, the Russians were headed towards Kherson, so as you know, nothing really changed there, right? In 1943, bounding across the steppes of southern Russia far beyond the bypass Crimea at an unslackened pace, General Giador Tolbikhin, uh, his Cossacks were declared in Moscow uh, as dispatches today, the Cossacks were declared to be cleaning up swiftly the last 30 miles remaining before Kyrgyzstan at the mouth, mouth of the Black Sea. Uh, nothing's changed. They were over there ramming around then. We found a story. This was from 1943. And then he's talking about 50 to 60 years previous to that. It's Sam Connor was his name. Reading that story in the magazine section recently about the three Augusta boys who had a private telegraph line, recall how common such things were 50 or 60 years ago. They were called bug lines, and this is where these guys and young men would rig up their own telegraph line, so this would be around 1900. Bug lines, as we called them, we graduated from the people that made their bug lines. We graduated some of the best men who ever pounded brass for the Western Union or the Postal or the Railroads. Some towns would have as many as five or six of these lines. 
In our town, we had at one time three of them all connecting up. That is, they connected so long as Polly and I felt they ought to. Anytime we decided there was something private for our section, the others were eliminated. This was possible because ours was between the two others. However, they weren't prevented from talking together merely from hearing our conversation. When our line, which was the first, was strung, it was a double wire with no dependence on a ground return. Later, the grounds were put in, which made it possible for us to put out, pull out of the full line and have a private wire. So they're talking about running their own telegraph line. We did this by cutting one of our wires completely out of the other circuit. He goes into some detail there. Uh, he talks about how he made it. This was accomplished by a switch we built ourselves. Probably an electrician would have laughed his head off at that switch, but it worked. He did the job. And what, what's more was called for, neither of us knew very much about electricity, but we worked out the plan for these switchboards. And by means of sheet brass, Bummed from friends who worked with it, we did the chore. Our telegraph instruments, while we did make some, were the regulation learner sets made by Burnell and Western Electric and other companies. These sold for $3.50 to $4.50 and consisted of a regulation key, a 40-ohm sounder set on a birch post and stained cherry, because you got to stain the birch cherry, Power was provided by regulation gravity batteries. We figured a battery for each set and one for the line, and that was ample. Now, these guys just grabbed together some equipment and made a telegraph line on their own. It's pretty astonishing. We used the regulation Morse alphabet just as did the railroads and commercial companies. It could just as well be called the American alphabet because that's what it was. Wireless and many other cubs or hams, which is what they were called in those days, uh, of today they use the continental or international code. The difference between the two is that Morse uses spaces and continental does not. The space is a brief pause between dots as it's used only in dot letters, not in a combination of dots and dashes. I think your eyes are starting to glaze over. He goes into quite a bit of detail. Uh, put a little bit more into this here. We wound magnets using spool heads for, uh, for heads and carriage bolts for cores, made armatures of big iron nails, used brass screws for contact points. We cut keys from white wood with a jigsaw and smoothed them with sandpaper. Rubber bands took the place of springs for tension to make sounders and keys. They were pretty crude, I'll admit, but they worked and we could send and receive on them, which was the test of efficiency. As like most of the boys of that time, a good deal of our time was spent at their railroad station helping, uh, I think I can't read it, but helping Mac. We wanted our instruments to be as road-ready as possible. That led Polly to construct a box relay, which was the type used in most stations because they made sounders unnecessary. In a box relay, the relay was enclosed in a box of thin wood. Magnet heads protruded through one end. The armature and the striking points were also on the outside. Result was that the box increased the sound so that the dots and dashes could be read direct from the relay without the use of sounder. 
So pretty technical, uh, but very interesting that that's something that uh, young men were doing at that time, making their own telegraph lines and stringing them up using the existing poles. We're going to deviate a little bit here. Look at a recipe for caramel loaf cake, high, light, and handsome. And they're talking about it being the richness of a loaf cake with the fluffy texture of a layer cake. No wonder everybody loves it. This is for Royal Tata. For its even steady action protects your bacon. It helps give high, light, and fresh, fine textured cakes that keep fresh and fluffy, tender hot breads too. And he goes on and on about it. But it was two and a half cups of sifted cake flour, two and a half teaspoons of royal cream of tartar, a quarter teaspoon of salt, half a cup of fortified margarine. This was in 1943, so they were probably limited butter for the war effort. One and a quarter cups of sugar, three eggs, one teaspoon of vanilla, and half a cup of milk. And then you sift that together, the bacon powder and the flour and salt. Cream the margarine, add sugar slowly, beating in well. Add unbeaten eggs one at a time. And you beat them well after each addition. You add the vanilla. You can smell the vanilla now. You put that in there. Add the dry ingredients alternatively with milk and mix well. Pour it into a large, well-greased loaf pan. And bake in a moderate oven at 350 for an hour and 25 minutes. Doesn't that seem like a long time? When, or maybe you're just eager to get that caramel loaf cake headed. Uh, when cold, cover top and sides with your favorite caramel frosting garnished with pecan nut meats makes one large light loaf cake. I think I just became a little bit dumber reading that, but that's all right. We had another bad ad here. Women in war. Ethel Brett, who works at a U.S. Navy yard, agrees with the men in the Navy who have made camel their favorite. Camels have a grand flavor and they don't get my throat, she says. And it's got a picture of the lady here and she's holding a cigarette. She says, camels just give me what I want, a milder smoke that always tastes fresh and delightful. And then says below, they've just got a diagram of the facial region down to the throat. And it says, check camels with your T-zone. The T-zone is taste and throat. It's the proving ground for cigarettes. Only your taste and throat can decide which cigarette tastes best to you and how it affects your throat. Based on the experience of millions of smokers, we believe camels will suit your T-zone to a T. Now go prove it to yourself. It's got the picture of the camel there, the lady with a cigarette enjoying her fresh and delightful cigarette. Apparently it was a theme at the time, uh, Marvel's. You ever heard of Marvel's cigarette? It's, it was the fresh cigarette of quality. And it's got a little box and it says, It's smarter than you think to smoke Marvel's. Fresh cigarettes are milder, smoother, and better tasting. Be good to your throat. The Marvel cigarettes are fresher when you buy them. And they stay fresh 26.4% longer after your pack is opened a better smoke all around. I think their ad was a little bit weak compared to the lady there at the shipyard. Uh, how are we doing on time? We're okay for a minute because we got a story we want to read to you. This was uh, Rachel Bishop was her name. 
She later became Mrs. Mayhew Beckworth, and she was born in 1808. This is up in Nova Scotia. She's the daughter of Joseph Bishop, blah, blah. Uh, she had no children. She was an intellectual woman, and at an advanced age, she retained an acute memory of events in her early girlhood. The following account was obtained from her many years ago by a Halifax, Nova Scotia newspaper reporter. This is a little bit of her diary, her life in, in Nova Scotia in the 1800s. We didn't have much money. We didn't need much as we raised everything on our own farm. We had plenty of good hard wood for the cutting and a nice fire it made on the long winter evenings. We raised our own meat and grain and made our own cloth and sugar and molasses from the sap of the maple tree and cider for we had no graft apples then, and we had to make cider of them. We made our candles and soap and linen thread, and as we had no matches, we kept the fire alive all night by raking it or covering it with ashes. If our fire should go out through absence or accident, we had to borrow from our nearest neighbor, often a long distance away. At Horton's Corner, where Wolfville is now, some store molasses and store sugar, which we thought made better cake than maple sugar, and then we bought bales of cotton thread for sewing, but there were no spools and calico cloth for summer wear, and some tea and I can't read the other word, but of course some people would have tobacco, and nearly all the families needed a certain amount of rum to treat their friends and visitors. What you had to sell was cheap, and what you wanted to buy was dear. Potatoes sold for seven cents, butter for six cents, geese for two shillings, six cents, lamb for two cents a pound, and an apples could not be sold at all. You had to pay uh, a year, two to, two pounds six shillings a yard for calico and five shillings a pound for tea. Now a man can sell enough apples from one tree to keep a small family in bread for a year, but then it was a heavy job to supply the family flour. The kind of meal we used was wheat, rye, and Indian corn. After harvesting, we had to take it eight miles or more to Benjamin's Mills at Gasparo. It was usually taken on horseback, and they would usually be gone more than one day. I remember what is called the deep snow, which fell the winter my father-in-law, Peter Strong, was at the mill and he could not get back for a week, the snow being up to the eaves of the houses. Today, to do our cooking, we had a big open fire with a crane and hooks in the fireplace on which to hang the pots for boiling. Baking was not so easy. We had a big brick oven in the chimney, and we'd build a fire in that. When it was well heated, it was a good place to bake bread and pies. And then we had a baked kettle that we could hang over the fire and bake small loaves and a griddle in a frying pan with a handle about five feet long that you could hold standing or, if you get tired, put it on the back of a chair. But you had to keep your eye on it, for if the baby creeping around should pull the chair away, your fat would be in the fire in a twinkling. Then came the tin baker, a Yankee invention, I think, but it was a splendid thing to bake rolls in before a good fire. When that was brought out, we knew there was to be something toothsome for tea. We had sour milk and, 
and these answered very well. The flower was dark anyway, and the color of the salatus would not show. We had no clocks when I was a small girl. I can remember when the Yankee peddlers came around with their clocks, and we thought them a wonderful invention. But we used to do pretty well without them, especially when the sun was out. People do not always get to a meeting at the same hour. The evening meetings were always held at early candlelight, and most people could judge that time within an hour. We had preaching once a month when Father Harding came up from Wolfville, and once a month at the time of the communion we went to Wolfville on Saturday, staying over Sunday. We usually went on horseback, as we had only hired springless market wagons. Deacon Strong got one of the first conveyances used in Canada, a two-wheeled shay with big leather circular springs at the back. He used that shay as long as he lived, and it was quite a comfortable affair. It made many a great journey to Gasparrow, where he visited his sister, and to Wilfield, where he was a deacon of the Baptist Church. Uh, she goes on to list some of the local names that lived there. Uh, they made good farms and lived in comfort. Their descendants have mostly moved away, and others are taking their places. We were much interested as children in the house of Jackson, an Englishman, which was built of stone with walls nearly three feet thick. We thought it strange that in a country abounding in wood, he should go to the trouble of building a stone house. That would be interesting to go look for that, that house there. Uh, the farmers went to Halifax once a year with a load of produce, either on horseback or later in a market wagon, and at the end of a week would return with necessaries for a year. Among these would be leather, which a journeyman shoemaker would make up into footwear for the family. Traveling tailors would also make regular visits. We had no daily mail then. We had no mail at all. About the only paper taken by us was the Christian messenger, which we got by going down the road, as we called the highway from Halifax to Annapolis, over which the coach went every day. It was my great delight as a child to see that wonderful vehicle with the six horses and the lamps go by, for it was generally dark when it passed the mouth of the Canaan Road. This was from uh, a book, 1930, McClellan Milner, The Basin of Minas and Its Early Settlers. You can find that book uh, in a free, free library online. Quite an interesting read. Well, it's time for the main mammal of the moment. It is Mephitis Mephitis, the striped skunk. He's got a picture of one here on a on a stump with his tail up in the air. Time to run away. The striped skunk, about the size of a house cat, it reaches a length of 25 to 32 inches, weighs between 3 and 14 pounds. I haven't seen a 14-pound skunk. It's more like a pig. It has small, beady black eyes, a pointed nose, a bushy tail, but its most distinctive feature is its coloration. Its coat is uniformly black with a broad white stripe running down its back. The stripe is a single line at the skunk's head, but splits into two as it continues down the back to its tail, forming a V in appearance. And we all know what a skunk looks like, don't we? The striped skunk is an omnivore. It eats both plants and animals. It's an opportunist by nature, depending on the season and food availability. It will eat insects, beetles, crickets, grasshoppers, eggs, vegetation, and garbage. 
the striped skunk's willingness to eat garbage has allowed it to spread into towns and cities. It forages at night, aggressively searching out food, guided by its strong sense of smell. It will hunt for insects by burrowing animals by digging. So they're all over the, the backyard. Uh, in the 1930s and 1940s, skunk pelts were in great demand, and although a market still exists, it's not as valuable as it once was. It talks about the, of course, they're all over the place. There's so many of them. They're not adept runners or climbers, and they defend themselves by spraying their attackers with an oily, foul-smelling musk. In addition to the pungent odor, the liquid can cause severe pain and even temporary blindness. When threatened, skunks will generally face the intruder, arch their back, raise their tail, and move backwards while stamping their feet. They can spray a scent up to 15 feet, but the smell can carry up to a mile. I think on the interstate, the smell carries about 10 miles. Uh... Their populations are susceptible to diseases such as rabies. Rabbit skunks are dangerous and should be avoided. No kidding. Uh, some characteristics of infect infected skunks are activity during the day, aggression, or being unable to spray. Imagine a skunk with his sprayer being broken. That's the main mammal of the moment. Uh, we'll look at the forecast, and then we're going to kick you out the door, tell you to have a good day. For today... Sunday, uh, I'm sorry, for today, Friday, uh, November 3rd, sunny is what we wanted to say. Mostly sunny with a high near 52, south wind 5 to 10 miles an hour, gusting as high as 25. That's pretty high wind. Uh, for tonight, increasing clouds with a low around 40, south wind around 10 miles per hour. And then for Saturday, partly sunny with a high near 53. Sunday looks uh, partly sunny as well, still around 50 for a high. And mon Monday is partly sunny. And then, then we have some showers rolling through uh, as we start uh, in to head into the week a little bit there. Well, that was the Down East Mike podcast for today. Until next time, I hope that you and your loved ones enjoy a day that is full of grace, love, and kindness. We'll see you. Go outside and pull my wagon.
Just leave me alone Leave me be Let me be. Oh. 